get rolling with Hebrews. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another wonderful day, another Lord's Day, to come together and to worship you. And so, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would send your spirit to be among us today. And that as we hear your word taught and preached, as we sing to you, as we pray to you and confess our faith to you, Lord, that, that you would be working among us and that you would change us through the power of your word. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that as you promised to do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, folks, we're, of course, continuing our series in Hebrews. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at um, all of chapter 8 this morning, which is 13 verses. So not, uh, not as much as we looked at last week. Um, but just by way of reminder, while you're turning there, we're, of course... Uh, Moving in now to the fifth major section of the book of Hebrews. You'll remember that the first four sections we've already covered now. The first one was that Christ is superior to the prophets. The second one, Christ is superior to the angels. And then thirdly, Christ is superior to Moses. And then fourthly, we spent three weeks talking about how Christ is superior to Aaron and the whole of the Old Testament priesthood. All right. And so today, in chapter 8, we turn to the next major section of Hebrews, which is that Christ is superior to the Old Covenant. And so it's sort of at this point where we're going to learn about how Christ... I'm trying to think of how exactly to say this. Essentially, what our author's doing is he's going to take everything we've talked about and start to begin to draw some of the more obvious and more careful implications of it. All right? And so for the next... Probably, probably about three weeks or so, we're going to be looking at how Christ is superior to the Old Covenant in general. And before I read the passage, before we get into this, let me just uh, make a note here. We need to understand what our author is talking about when he talks about the Old Covenant all right, or the Old Testament. Because sometimes when we think about the Old Testament, when I, when I say that or when we hear it, we can sometimes tend to think, that the Old Testament encompasses everything from Genesis 1, creation, all the way to when Jesus came. Okay? And that would be fine in one sense. We can talk about the Old Testament in a general sense as referring to everything that happened before the time of Christ. Right? That's why we call that section of the Bible the Old Testament. But the biblical authors sometimes, when they're talking about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant... They're not simply talking about everything between Adam to the first coming of Christ. But rather, what they're talking about is a specific portion of that time. And what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he's referring to the Old Covenant or the Old Testament is he's talking about that covenant of Israel under Moses. He is talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Everything that came with Moses... The sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, later the temple, etc. All of those institutions, all those ceremonies. That's what the biblical authors, especially the author of Hebrews, as well as the Apostle Paul, mean when they're talking about the Old Covenant. Okay, So when we talk about Christ being superior to the Old Covenant, that's what our author has in mind. So keep that in your mind while I read this passage. Because here we're going to pick up Hebrews chapter 8 beginning with verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There's a number of ways that we could break down and talk about this passage this morning, but I've got two major points. You should notice a pattern, by the way. I like two-point teachings, all right? I also have a lot of sermons that are uh, built on two-point outlines also. So I like two points. Therefore, I see two points everywhere. Here in this passage, uh, we're going to talk about two points. The first point is that the priests are inferior to Christ, all right? The priests are inferior to Christ, verses 1 through 6. And that leads us then to talking more generally about the second point, which is that the Old Covenant is inferior to Christ. And it makes sense that our author's talking about the priesthood at the beginning here because we've just spent three chapters in Hebrews talking about Christ being our superior priest. And so our author is using that discussion to then continue his argument into something more general and something more all-encompassing. And that is that Christ is superior to everything in the Old Covenant. That is, covenant under Moses. Okay, So, let's look at what he says about the priest being inferior. Uh, Verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, we talked about this last week when we were dealing with Melchizedek. Right? Because we're told that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7. Now what that means is that Jesus is not only a priest who's after a superior order than the Levites and the Aaronic priests, right? because they paid tithes to Abraham, as we talked about last week. 
So not only is Jesus a superior priest, but we're told that like Melchizedek, he is simultaneously a priest and a king. And our author describes that here in verse 1 in precisely that way. We have a high priest who sits at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. That is a description of kingly power. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a priest and a king. And one of the things that we need to see is that our author bases this argument not just you know, bringing it up out of nowhere or just making it up. But he actually bases this argument on the Old Testament. And in fact, he's paraphrasing right here Psalm 110. And so if you will, keep your finger in Hebrews 8, but flip over to Psalm 110 just for a second. Because Psalm 110, it's a very short psalm. I'm going to read it for you. Psalm 110 describes exactly this thing that the author of Hebrews is telling us. Psalm 110. In fact, you're going to hear a lot of Psalm 110 that's very familiar to you. And we'll talk about why that is in a second. Psalm 110, beginning with verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brooks by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so what you can see described there in Psalm 110 is this reality that David is prophesying about a certain someone who will come in the future. And what this certain someone is going to be is he's going to be someone who sits at the right hand of God and who will execute God's judgment on the nations. But not only is this person going to sit at the right hand of God, but he's going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this person that David's talking about is someone who is going to be simultaneously a king and a priest. So you can see, the author of Hebrews in 7 and 8, he is not making things up. He's not coming up with this on his own. Uh, He is getting this from the Old Testament. He is getting this from King David himself in Psalm 110. And this is really important to show Jesus' superiority to the Levitical priests. Because the Levitical priests were just that. They were priests. They offered sacrifices for the people. They brought sacrifices before God. Right? They were mediating between God and the people. But none of the priests were ever kings. None of the kings of Israel were ever priests. And Jesus comes along, according to King David, and he's going to simultaneously fill both offices. You see, the priests, they could announce God's judgment. But we're told that Jesus, being both priest and king, 
is not only able to announce God's judgment, and not only is he able to receive God, the judgment of the elect on himself by offering himself as a sacrifice, but Jesus himself is then able to go out and execute God's judgment and wrath on his enemies. Right, so you can see this in terms of the big picture of who Jesus is and what he's doing encompasses his personal work, his kingship, and his priesthood. And we'll talk about his prophetic office later on. All right, so that's one of the first reasons that Jesus is superior to the priests because he is simultaneously a priest and a king. But there's a second reason, and that shows up in verse 5. All right, now, he, listen to what our author says. He's talking about the priests here, talking about the Old Testament priests. He says, verse 5, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay? So notice there a second reason how Jesus is superior to these priests. Because the priests themselves were but a shadow of the things that were to come. They served as a shadow or as a copy of the heavenly things. Now, I, you guys know that about a week and a half ago or so, I took my last final exams. Right now, I'm done with the spring semester, and now I'm just gearing up for summer classes. But one of the things that I've been doing just with some, some uh, much-coveted free time in the last few days is I've been reading Plato's Republic. Very, very fascinating work. Um, I've always wanted to read it from cover to cover. never, ever got the chance to do that, but now I'm reading through it. And it's in Plato's Republic that Plato describes his very famous analogy of the cave. Maybe some of you have heard of Plato's cave. Maybe some of you haven't heard of Plato's cave. But Plato has a very famous analogy as he's describing what a philosopher should be. Because has Plato, Plato's recording for us a conversation between Socrates and a bunch of his students. And Socrates is trying to describe the ideal city, the ideal republic. What kind of government should we have? What kind of soldiers should we have, etc.? And what Socrates says is he says, we need to have good philosophers. And here's what philosophers do. And he gives this story, this sort of analogy to help his students understand what a philosopher should be. And so Socrates describes that you have a bunch of people in a cave. And what happens is these people look, they spend their entire lives looking at a wall. They don't know anything except this wall that they're looking at in this dark cave. And behind these people is a fire. And that fire is casting shadows onto the wall. And so these people grow up their entire lives looking at shadows on the wall. And so as animals and, and trees and different things are behind them, those shadows are being cast on the wall. And these people spend their entire lives looking at the shadows. And Socrates said... Those people that look at those shadows, that's normal people. That is what people do by nature. They just look at the shadows. They love to look at the shadows. But imagine if someone came along and told them, hey, don't just look at the shadow. Look at the thing behind you that's casting the shadow. Because, you see, the shadow is not actually reality. 
The shadow's just an outline, sort of a dark figure that you can see that represents the real thing behind you. But what you need to do is you need to look behind you and see the real thing. You need to get behind the shadows. That's what Socrates says the task of a philosopher is, to get past the shadows and to see the real things behind you. And you say, what on earth does Socrates have to do with Hebrews? Well, Hebrews is describing this sort of thing. Remember, our author is describing, or he's writing to Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to practice Jewish customs and rituals. They're being tempted to abandon Christ and go back to the sacrificial system, to go back to the priests, to go back to the temple. And our author is saying, look, why are you doing that? Why would you ever want to do that? You're like people who are looking at shadows and you think the shadows are the real thing. No, don't look at the shadows. Look at the real stuff. The priesthood, the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of this stuff in the Mosaic economy is all for the purpose of pointing toward Christ. They are simply dark outlines of Christ. Christ himself is casting the shadow of these things. Christ himself is the substance. He is the reality. These things are shadowy copies. Don't go back to those things. Turn to Christ. He is the greater. He is the one that is giving the priests and the sacrifices in the temple all of their meaning and significance. They are nothing without Christ. As much as a shadow cannot exist without the real thing, so the temple and the sacrifices and the priests cannot exist without the real thing. Now you see the power of that. The priests are nothing but shadows of heavenly things. The temple is nothing but shadows of heavenly things. That is precisely why the author of Hebrews here indicates and quotes for us from Exodus where Moses was required to build the tabernacle in a precise way. It wasn't just because the tabernacle needed to be beautiful, although certainly God wanted his house to be beautiful with all the ornate decor and gold and different tapestries and so on. But God didn't command all of that just so that his temple would be lovely. He commanded it very specifically, prescribing all of the dimensions and all of the artifacts and all of the elements of it, precisely because all of them were designed in such a way to point forward to the thing that they represented, which was Christ and the heavenly realities. And so we're going to talk more about that next week because in chapter 9, our author is going to go into this in much more detail about how the temple actually was a picture of heaven and Jesus. But sticking with chapter 8 here and sort of trying to get the point, we can see Jesus is superior to the priest, number one, because he's a king and a priest at the same time. And he's superior to the priest, number two, because the priests are merely shadows pointing forward to Christ. Okay? And so it is in light of this, Christ's superiority to the Old Testament priests, that the author of Hebrews now in verse 7 moves on to his next point. And that point is that the, not only the priesthood, but the entire Old Covenant itself is inferior to Christ. And here's how he does that. Verse 7. 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now you can see there in that verse, the author of Hebrews is saying that the old covenant had what he calls faults. And we've got to make sure we understand what he's saying there because we don't want to understand his meaning that you know, God made a mistake when he instituted the old covenant. Right? Because everything that Moses delivered to the people of Israel was straight from the lips of God. Right? So it's not as if God made a mistake. It's like, you know, oh, let's try establishing all of these rituals and the sacrifices in the temple and just see how this goes. And then God saw, whoops, that was a mistake, I guess. Yeah, there may be some faults with that. We better change it up a little bit. New covenant. No, that's, that's not what happened. That's not what our author means by faults. What he's talking about is he's talking about incompletions. Or if you will, imperfections. Not imperfect as in wrong or, or sinful as we would think. But imperfect in the sense that it has not been carried to completion. It was never intended to be final. The old covenant had holes that needed to be filled by Christ. The old covenant had meaning that needed to be filled by Christ. Those are the faults that he's talking about here. Not fault as in mistake but faults as in incomplete. And in order to, to bolster his point here, he doesn't just make the statement and move on, but like, and, one of, and this is one of the things I love so much about Hebrews, is that our author doesn't just make points, but he goes to the Old Testament, and he finds where the prophets speak to exactly what he's talking about. And so here, after saying that the Old Covenant had these faults or incompletions, he then in verse 8 Quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. And just for your reference, this is Jeremiah chapter 31 that he's quoting from. Now listen to what Jeremiah says, because this is all backing up exactly what our author is saying. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, speaking of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now that all is a direct quote coming from Jeremiah 31. This is the great prophecy of the new covenant that Jeremiah gives. And just by way of context for Jeremiah 31 and this prophecy, remember, Jeremiah is prophesying right at the time of the Babylonian exile, when God is sending Nebuchadnezzar to come and to wipe out Israel and to bring them into captivity. And the great question on Jeremiah's lips, as well as on Israel's minds at this time, is God, if you send judgment on us, what is going to happen with your kingdom? How are your promises going to come about? How is it, oh God, that David is going to be on the throne? You promised we'd have a Davidic king. You promised a descendant of David would be on the throne forever. Yet we don't see that happening because you are destroying Israel. 
and we're going into exile. Uh, that's the question on Jeremiah's mind and on Israel's mind. And so to bring them hope, to bring them something to trust in, he says, that covenant that God made with Israel and with Moses is not final. We are going to move past that because a new covenant is on its way. A new covenant is coming that will not be like the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when he led them out of Egypt. And, he, and Jeremiah here gives four distinctives of the new covenant, four things that make this covenant somewhat different from the Mosaic covenant. And we, we don't have time to cover all of the distinctives as much as I would like to, but there's one that I want to focus on here. Well, let me just go through them really quickly, and then we'll, we'll focus on one. The first one is in verse 10. Uh, he says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, this new covenant, right, in this covenant, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that in the Old Testament, the people of God did not have the law of God on their hearts. Right? Because all human beings... From all going all the way back to Adam, had the law of God written on their heart in the form of the conscience. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans 1. So this is not an absolute statement to say that the Old, Old Testament people didn't have the law of God <clears throat> written on their hearts. But rather, what he's saying is that the law of God in the New Testament is going to be profoundly more emphasis on the internal. So remember, in the Old Covenant, the law of God was profoundly external. Not that there wasn't an internal reality, but in the Old Covenant, the laws about being clean and worshiping God and so on were very much about external rituals. Right? Very much about you got you to you know, wash yourself this way, you got to wash your clothes this way, you got to perform this and you got to perform that to come into the sanctuary. Very much external stuff. And that external stuff was important. It symbolized the internal stuff that Israel was supposed to have. But what Jeremiah is bringing out here is not that there was no internal law of God in the Old Testament, and now there is. But what he's saying is that the emphasis in the New Covenant is all about the internal, because we're getting rid of the Old Covenant external ceremonies. The emphasis is the law of God on the heart. All right? That's the first distinctive. Secondly, he says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this is not so much a distinctive, because God says this about people of Israel under the Old Covenant. But it's the emphasis upon God's covenant relationship with his people. When they come into covenant with me, these people in the New Covenant, I will be their God. And they really will be my people. Third distinctive, verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them even to the greatest. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this distinction. Don't have time for that this morning. But essentially, what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing here is that in the New Covenant, the people of God will have a much more profound ability to approach God and to learn from his word. I see in the old covenant, right, people had to be mediated so carefully by priests and prophets. 
But in the new covenant, we have the priesthood of all believers. We have the Holy Spirit poured out, prophesied in Joel and in Isaiah. We have, we have the Holy Spirit anointed on all believers that empowers us to do the work of ministry and to read the word of God and to proclaim the word of God. Now, this doesn't mean there's no need for teachers or that there's no need for pastors or anything. We get that clearly from the New Testament. But the point here is very much an emphasis on because of the fact that Jesus is our priest. We have access to the Father through the priesthood of all believers. Okay? Again, we could spend a lot of time on that, but we've got to keep going. The fourth distinctive here, and this one is the most significant, comes in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah describes here that the promise of the new covenant is the full and final forgiveness of sins. The full and final forgiveness of sins in Christ. Because you see, we're going to learn in chapter 10 that the sacrifices of the old covenant, they were not sufficient to bring about forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't mean they didn't have any purpose or they didn't have any kind of spiritual benefit for God's people. But they didn't bring forgiveness. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But rather, when Christ was offered for all time, once for all, he takes away sins because his is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so that's why in verse 13, our author says, in speaking of a new covenant, Jeremiah makes the first one obsolete. That is, Jeremiah is showing the people of Israel that the Mosaic Covenant, all of these rituals, all these sacrifices, all of this business is going to come to an end because the New Covenant is bringing with it greater promises. The Old Covenant was a shadow pointing forward to Christ. And you can see here then that our author continues to hold up the superiority of Christ to everything. And the reason, the most fundamental, climactic reason that he gives for holding up the superiority of Christ to the Old Covenant in this chapter is that Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. We don't trust in rituals. And our author speaking to the Jewish people who are tempted to go away from Christ. He says, don't trust the rituals. Don't go back to that. You have the substance. You have the reality. Hold fast to Christ. And guys, that is the same message to us this morning. Hold fast to Christ. In Him is where we have forgiveness of sins. Nowhere else. No ritual. No sacrament. No anything is powerful to save. Christ is the one who saves. Hold fast to Christ. He is the one who gives us full, final, lasting Forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that uh, we have full, final forgiveness of sins through Christ. And, and Lord, we, uh, sometimes we take for granted the fact that um, we have this great privilege of living in history during the time of the new covenant. Lord, we are greatly privileged 
And we are so greatly privileged even today to have your word so readily available to us and the freedom to worship you and to praise you and to hear your word on your day. Lord, pray that you would draw these truths to our mind this morning and that as we enter your sanctuary to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray that you would change us and that you would make our hearts ready and willing to hear your word and to hear your gospel this morning, Lord. Work the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our hearts more deeply and more fully today. I pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.